1 and 2 of 2 Peter chapter 1. Um, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, Simeon, Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to come, Lord, and to preach this, Father God. I pray, Lord, that I've prepared, uh, that I've prepared in, in prayer, meditation, Father God, in deep study of the Word, that I'm ready to come in and preach this, Father God. I pray, God, that this is beneficial. This isn't a flight of fancy, Father God, or an arrogance or an indulgence on my part intellectually, Father God, but that this is what's called for. And God, I, in the midst of a, of a nation and a world, Lord, that is undergoing such an, such an upheaval, Father God, I don't, uh, I, God, I, I know, Lord, that, the, that your words are the only comfort, Father God, that your knowledge is the only power, Father God, the only antidote to all the ailments that, that strike us at this moment within the church or within the world, Father God. But I pray, Father God, that the prescription, Father God, specifically for today, Lord, is guided by your hand, that I'm preaching what you wanted me to preach, Father, that I'm not preaching what I found or what I thought was interesting, Father God. I'm not preaching from some type of intellectual um, delight, Father God, but I'm preaching from heart commitment, God. That's what I pray for now, because I realize, Father God, that... Um, that the world needs the truth right now, and that I need, uh, with my own opportunity, with my uh, opportunity this week, Father God, to preach it to the very best of my ability. So bless us now, Father God, that as I preach, God, that this church cheers it on, Father God, this church prays for it and, and commits themselves to it, Father God. And I pray, Lord, that what can seem so small, Father God, can be so huge in our lives. And bless us, Father God, that even the greeting in First Peter, Father God, excuse me, in Second Peter, Father God, could be something so powerful, God, that it holds within its power life-changing truth, Father. Bless us for this now, Father God. In this way, Lord, we love you in the name of Christ Jesus, Father God. We pray. Amen. Uh, Peter begins this book by introducing himself, and I think that's maybe where I want to get started. It's, in, it's such a strange world that we're in right now. Um, the joke, if it were a joking matter that I was going to make, was that we now, Brother Kyle, live in a world where everybody has been put in time out, has been sent to their room, which is, it seems so true, um, except it's not without dinner, right? Because all we do is eat all the time. And as soon as we're finished, we start thinking about what's next to come. All right, so I understand that it is a, it's, it's a strange world. Um, I, I will say this, as I was praying over that, and I'll be honest with you, I was just thinking about you know, making that kind of humorous comment, but then I thought to myself, maybe I shouldn't, because the reality is, is that it is deadly serious business. I don't mean COVID-19. We understand that a disease is deadly serious business. We understand that. We understand that what we do is out of both love for our neighbor and out of an obedience to those who are leaders. We get that. But at the same time, if there's a benefit to this, it is the fact that we we are much, a couple months into this, we are so engaged with our families in a way that we weren't before. Especially if you had older people in your family. It's easy to, I mean, those connections are text message. Now they are face-to-face -face connections. All right? It's it's something something amazing. We've also been called upon to start to work on ourselves. Um, a lot of us in this room right now have oodles of time for devotion, don't we? That we did not have before. 
We have, we have expansive amounts of time for prayer, expansive amounts of time for, for study and meditation and memorization that we simply did not have before. We were doing our very best to wedge righteous things into a world in which we were responsible for, our, for, for, for financial provision, for instance. And now we're, now we're kind of freed for a little bit of that. I'm, I'm sure there's, there, there can be challenges that come through that. But the reality here is, is that we've got a, a chance now to really focus our hearts and our minds on Christ in a way, it, generationally, that we really haven't had before. We had to take, and now we've been given. We've been blessed with this opportunity. And as I look at Peter's words, I said to myself, you know what Peter's really doing here, guys? Peter is defining what it means to be a believer in the church. In the church. So let's look at it because he, he introduced himself. And so in his introduction, I think we're going to find the truth I'm talking about. And he also introduces his standing with God when he says he's a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. He's a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So, so who is Peter? He's a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now I want to share with you how I believe that that is to be our definition also. Just in, just in looking at verse 1. Now the Greek terms that Peter uses reveal a great deal about what it means to follow Christ um, entirely as Savior and Lord. I mean not living a contradictory life, not living a, a compromised life are a life in which we have rationalized away enormous, um, enormous uh, difficulties. But what I mean is how we can live a life that is completely enslaved to Christ. This, this life is totally His. Now, the one who's saying this can't break his arm, pat himself on the back, that he has done this. I am on this journey along with you to find where do, how do I do this? How do I do this at, at 52? How do I do this with responsibilities? How do I do this surrounded by loved ones? How do I do this in such a way as to lead my, lead my family? How do I do these things? Um, his word for servant is a very familiar word that we, that we speak of a lot in the Greek. It's the word doulos. Doulos. And there's a whole, um, whole wonderful definition because that we won't cover at this moment. But it is specifically the Greek word for enslaved. So servant or slave are within the pages of Scripture seemingly synonymous. Peter touts the fact that he has been enslaved to Christ. And, and the next word, the word apostle, is a, a, apostolos. Now, that word means a delegate, specifically an ambassador of the gospel. In, in terms of what the Bible says, the apostles were ambassadors of the gospel. Now, now, Peter, right after that, addresses his audience. And, and we'll just say this, by divine implication, when Peter says, finishes verse 1, he is addressing us as much as the immediate intended audience that Peter was writing for. You know, there's power and implication that goes with being part of the canon of Scripture. Specifically being that when you're part of the canon of Scripture, you're, in, you're intended for the whole church for all time. So we can take every promise to be both temporary for those who heard it and for us now. As well as we can take anything Peter says here to be for us now also. So he address, addresses his audience. He says, 
that we are those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. So he tells us then that our faith is of equal standing with whose? With his. So our faith is of equal standing with Peter's faith. Our faith is of equal standing with Paul's faith, with John's faith. That we are those who have been united with Christ by the same faith that united Peter and Paul and John and others. Now, if we build upon Peter's foundation of truth and personal definition, we can now say more precisely what it means to be a believer in any age. So if we're going to come up with a definition now of what it means to be a believer, we want an enduring definition. I don't want a definition that fits 2020. I want a definition that was good in 1900 and that was good in, that will be good in 2050. I want to know what, what Peter thinks a believer is. Because what Peter thinks a believer is, is more important than what Tony thinks a believer is. Tony can tell you in anecdotal terms or in folksy, humorous terms what he thinks it means to be a believer and I can write about it and I can wax philosophic about it, but what Peter says matters. So when Peter describes the believer, man, we need to listen. When Peter says this is what believers are, then we need to listen. Now, I'm going to say this. What our world desperately needs is a restoration of those essential and ancient, excuse me, and ancient determinations of what being a, a follower of Christ really entails. What the world needs is for the church to stop looking forward and stop looking at themselves and stop growing themselves and stop paying attention to themselves. And for the church to really take this time and look back to the ancient scriptures and say, okay, God, show me what I'm supposed to look like spiritually. What's my life supposed to be composed of? I've got time now. Let's go back and obsess over the scriptures for just a moment. The world needs this. It needs that restoration of those essential and ancient determinations. What it means to be a true follower of Christ. And looking for the true believers of the Lord to demonstrate those matters with great certainty and great vitality. In other words, we have now become newly committed to showing the world what we preach. Not substituting showing for preaching, but showing the world what we believe and what we say, demonstrating our faith every single day. Look, the last thing that the church or the pitifully condemned world can suffer is some newly contrived definition of what genuinely submitting to Jesus is. Because there's a lot of guys out there, unfortunately a lot of them are on television, who are going to remodel the faith after themselves and after the current culture. Now, not only is it unwise, because the current culture is, is as damned as the previous culture was, but the moment you tailor your new definition to the current culture, the culture changes. The reason why Peter's definition of Christ is durable and lasting is because it's not dependent upon our culture. It's missional. It's from outside of our culture, interjected in by God to change the culture from the inside. Change the hearts and the minds and the lives of the people. We can't suffer some newly created definition. Look, virtually always 
These definitions come from our own arrogance or indulgence. Every time we toy with the scriptures, every time we start to rationalize away um, definitions that, that the Bible gives us, we virtually always do that because we think secretly we know better or because there's something that we want, that we know the Bible says is wrong, that we want to make right. It's virtually always predicated on, on some aspect of our morality that we simply do not want to surrender to God. We, we'll give Him anything, but we won't give Him this issue. So whenever we, we toy or doctor uh, the Scriptures, we almost always do it because we want to say that something is right, that the Bible clearly says uh, Brother Brian is wrong. Leonard Ravenhill preached this. He said the world out there doesn't need a new definition of Christianity. It needs a new demonstration of it. We need to be, as a people, that new demonstration of the old Christianity. Of a Christianity that's just as valid in 2020 as it was in a thousand years ago. That's just as valid. What then does Peter say in his self-demonstrated definition of Christian faithfulness? What does he say? Believers, this is, this I believe, his definition. Believers in Christ are enslaved to their Lord by the liberation of the gospel and appointed by His will as ambassadors of the truth which sets men free. Believers are enslaved, enslaved to Christ by the liberation of the gospel and appointed by His will as ambassadors of that gospel. Look, in no way can we foolishly claim the title apostle. That's, simply put, biblically ridiculous. Peter and Paul can. We can't. We cannot do that. But we can dedicate our lives and our allegiance to the truth, which is the new song of our hearts. If, if you boil down apostle, other than, than some more esoteric aspects of it that simply are not true now, the reality was they were men who were completely dedicated to the truth that saved them to the point that they would give their lives for it. They would take that gospel and go where God commanded and give their blood and their life if necessary to preach it. Look, we can't be apostles, but we can do that. We can't, be a, we can't call ourselves apostles, but we can absolutely be dedicated to doing that very thing. In fact, every Christian is an ambassador of the message which brought them new birth and is a servant of Jesus Christ. Every one of us is already an ambassador of this message, for good or for bad. Every one of us is already called to demonstrate this message in our lives and to witness to this message with our, with our time and with our, with our lives, whether we want to or not. That is inconsequential. Whether we find it convenient or not is inconsequential. We are all ambassadors and servants. The very sentiment is supported by the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.20, which say, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. As believers who have been delivered from the bondage of sin and the consequences of our actions, we are now bound ministers of the reconciliation of Christ which brought us to our knees and will heal this decimated world. We are a people, a people literally in search of a cure right now, of a dread disease that will eventually take the lives of millions. 
We right now, though, have the cure within our hearts and within our minds and within our knowledge of the greater disease. The disease of sin and death and condemnation. All of this is possible because none of us are second class citizens of the faith. But as Peter says, we have a faith of equal standing with himself. We are not second class because God has called us out of darkness to light with the same gospel message and the same blood. Doubtless, the apostles were great men of God used valiantly to deliver the gospel message to the world by way of preaching and writing the scriptures. They were, they were there or responsible for great miracles, signs and wonders which accompanied their work. Look, while we cannot call ourselves apostles, nor should we expect the wonderment of the apostolic age, we can live like apostles. With the absolute reckless abandon of one who cares only about the command of God. If I want to boil it down even further, what is a believer in Christ Jesus? What is a Christian? It's someone who only cares about the command of God. What did God tell me to do? What does the word say? They only care about the command of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and cares absolutely about its impact on the lost and dying. Every believer is an evangelist. And every believer is a missionary. Without exception. But then in verse 2. Simon Peter then pronounces over the church. An elegant blessing. Which is vital for our doctrinal. And practical flourishing. Praying that grace and peace. Be multiplied to the church. My goodness at this time. Who would have thought. That staying home would be such a trying thing for the nation. Most of us, when we go to work, can't wait for one thing, to go home. And when it's Wednesday, we start dreaming about Friday, right? And when it's Friday, I can't remember having a bad Friday. I don't care what they do to you on Friday, it's usually a pretty good day, isn't it? Because you know it's just going, tomorrow's going to be a day off. It's going to be a day to relax. Who would have known that relaxation, for not all of us, but for a huge portion of the people of the globe right now, that relaxation would be such a trying thing. Once again, it, it, it really is a demonstration of the brokenness and the fragility of, of human nature in that the one person we're the most afraid of is ourselves. We're afraid of being alone with ourselves. We're afraid of being stuck with our thoughts. Because oftentimes our, 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 our thoughts are dark. Our thoughts don't embody the glory of God, but they embody the selfishness of the human nature. Who would have thought that now in the midst of a, of a nation that's not at work, we would need grace and peace multiplied more than ever? We're so used to programming ourselves to, to deal with those challenges as being the challenge of provision, the challenge of work, the challenge of, of too much, of too many demands. And now, in which for a huge portion of at least the American populace, for a huge portion of it, there are fewer demands on our time than ever before. And if you, if you believe, I hate to say, if you believe social media, we need grace and peace multiplied now more than ever. It must mean that the one thing we can't afford to do without is grace and peace being multiplied to us. That if, if the first definition, the first is a definition of, 
of what it means to be a believer. Then the second is what the believer needs. What do we need? We need grace and peace multiplied to the church, no doubt. The source of these precious commodities in the life of the Christian is named as the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So how do we have grace and peace multiplied? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. For Christians, the overflowing, multiplying grace and peace that sustains us and enables believers to weather even the fiercest storm is not an accidental occurrence or merely a product of the goodness of the divine nature, but must be established in and flows from this knowledge. So if I want grace and peace multiplied in my life, then I better be seeking knowledge of God and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I better be seeking the knowledge of my Lord so that grace and peace can be multiplied. Now, now Peter uses the word epignosis. Now, we use that word gnosis, which means, you know, which is that idea from which we get knowledge. Gnosis. And it's defined as a specific knowledge or a particular knowledge of a particular subject. It's also defined as, as perception or discernment, as recognition or intuition. The undergirding of peace and grace, which we desire so much, the freedom from internal and external strife, and the support of the undeserved favor of God is a byproduct of a life spent in pursuing the deepest knowledge of the triune God. Simply put, church, I have to say this. The, you know, aside from what I have prepared, if there's one issue that the church faces, is that we have the most glorious, the most infinitely beautiful, everlasting God to worship. And we have spent lifetimes neglecting the pursuit of that God. Not just intellectually. But as we talked about many times within this church. Pursuing God by being holy. Pursuing God by saying there's some things that the people of God cannot do. Seeking to expand God's horizons. When we should have been narrowing ours. We've neglected the living God. We've neglected the pursuit of the living God to simply to, to just be honest with you. We've neglected the pursuit of the living God to placate people. To placate people. If there's one thing we can def use to define God's people, God's people are in love with God and in love with the Word of God. And for a long time now, the church has not conducted itself as if it was in love with the Word of God. As if God spoke and the church acted. Therefore, Peter's affirmation is of Christ as the singular obsession of the life and mind of the believer. The single obsession of the life and mind of the believer. As Paul emphasizes. In Philippians 3, 7 through 11, a very, very uh, familiar passage. In verse 7 of Philippians 3, Paul writes, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 
and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ and righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is crystal clear. Whatever he had gained in his life, he saw then through the prism of the gospel. Through the power of the shed blood, he saw his loss. All that time as a Pharisee. He is a man who had memorized the scriptures. His memorization of the scriptures was counted as loss. It's counted as loss. Not because memorizing the scriptures is a bad thing, but because a wicked and unconverted heart was seeking solace in scriptures that should have condemned his very life. All the scriptures taught Paul after salvation was what a fool he had been before. The greatest lesson of all. You have been a fool. You've been a blind fool. Counted everything is lost for the sake of Christ. Everything is lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Knowing Him. We're not just talking about this moment of ascension. This shaking a hand and, and, and baptism and then going forth to do what we want. That's not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is knowing Christ. Deeply and intimately. Having Him every day show us our weaknesses, Brother Brian, and show us our faults. Showing us every single day how we have tragically and epically failed the one who shed blood for our sins. That's the Christian faith. The faith is to know God in a way we know no one else. And to be known by God. He said he suffered the loss of all things and it was garbage. Give up everything. Because he realized the truth of the words of Christ. The gospel is the pearl of great price. That you'll sell everything and buy that field, not because the field is worth anything, because the pearl is worth everything. If you find it, you'll hide it back so no one steals it away. He'll do anything for it. Everything he had before was rubbish. He traded it all for the gospel. Everything. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. None of my own righteousness. But that which comes through faith in Christ. Because see, what people will do is we will make up our own righteousness. We'll make up our own way. And Paul says you have to reject that. It's, it's, the, it's Christ's way of righteousness or none at all. All again, so that we may know Him. The power of His resurrection, so that we can be part of that resurrection. As Peter surely would echo, the Apostle Paul had seen everything that he was ever taught. Everything that his culture said was important. Destroyed by the power of the gospel message in his own heart. How many people today will hear the gospel and refuse to accept it for one reason? Because they do not want to change. They do not want to give things up. They want to be the same person they've always been. They want to believe the same way they've always believed. They are not willing to trade what they have now for what they will infinitely have. All this work, the ambition, the tradition of His people, His heart now says is unimportant without merit. As always, when the truth of Christ invades a life, it leaves no remnant 
of the old system and its priorities. And it refuses to acknowledge any value at all in the old existence. Before Christ you are dead and your works are the works of dead men and dead women. It is only after Christ comes that you are truly alive. That anything you produce is worthwhile. As Solomon writes in Proverbs 17.20, A man of crooked heart does not discover good. And one with a dishonest tongue falls into calamity. We are all men and women before Christ with crooked hearts, brothers, and with, with dishonest tongues. Whatever the natural human heart chooses to focus on is not of any value, despite what the culture demands or recognizes as priceless. The product of the new heart given through Christ is new pursuits, and vibrant passions that flow from a life that is utterly obsessed with the nature and character of God as revealed through the Scriptures. This obsession is what changes. You know, if there's one problem we have, uh, the title of the sermon is Great Promises. The one title we have is that so seldom we live like people of promise. We, we live as which, in which we know that God has promised these things, but we don't live like, like they're true. How's our life going to change if we obsess over the Word of God and then believe it is true? Believe that God means what He says, that He will deliver on His promises. It is a life-changing book when we dare to believe it in all of its audacity. We dare to say that God means what He says. This is no scholarly endeavor, but it's a lifetime commitment to live for Christ by pleading with Him to live through us. Look, as the martyr Jim Elliot wrote in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Look, for Jim Elliot, believing in Christ meant serving him to the extent that he gave his life for the gospel message. Through a rugged determination and a willingness to believe all the promises of God, Elliot died a missionary and a martyr. He, Nate Saint, the others... Those men for whom the writer of Hebrews said were men of whom the world was not worthy. And he opened the door, literally in the United States Life magazine did a whole photo expose of these five men. There was an outpouring from the United States because of their death. The Huarani tribe that took their lives was one to the Lord, including some of the very men that took the lives of Elliot and Saint and the others. All of this is possible because five men believed God's promises and acted on them. They're so obsessed with the Word of God that when it came time to go, they went. Because God commands. Look, the call of Christ to focus our hearts and minds on Bible truth is a call to remembering the gospel each day of our lives. To living in the shadow of the bloody cross to dying every day to ourselves and our sin and our ambition and to compassionately sharing the truth. That's the call. John wrote in 1 John 2, 24-25, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. For Jim Elliot and Renate Saint, this life wasn't cheap and it wasn't free, but it was a worthwhile sacrifice because they stood to inherit eternal life forever. What we heard in the beginning 
is the truth of nails and cross, of tomb and throne, the good news that must be embraced in time. Look, if, you've not, if you have not embraced the truth of the gospel, hear the gospel today and realize that the sin is yours, but the suffering is His. Gladly done so that you might live. Let the truth, church, be demonstrated in your life. And if you have not, let the truth abide in you so that the great promise, eternal life, can be yours. Do this, please, I beg of you, before time runs out. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity, God, to come 